Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And I have an announcement to make. I just got a job. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. At Target, which is fine. It's a very good thing that I got this job. It is very hard to find a job in this area at the moment. As you may have heard on earlier episodes, I had a very humbling experience trying to find a job at restaurants on South Beach. This is not only fine, this is good. It is very good, I need a job. This came about in the nick of time and and there is nothing wrong with this job. What is wrong, okay, this is the way that I'm contextualizing it. It is a very good thing that I got a job at Target, but it is maybe a very bad thing that I have found myself in a situation where getting a job at Target is a very good thing, like a very fortunate thing bailing me out of trouble. It's a great place. It's right near my apartment. This is a really sweet situation, but on the other on the other side of the argument, fuck. God damn it. Shit. I kind of am dreading this. I've worked retail before, and it's a nightmare. And last night after I sort of was offered the job, I went to a bar because I'm not religious, so I went to the only place I could think of, and I sat down, and for, like, the wrongest thing I could have done is I went on Reddit, and I drew up, like, discussion threads of people saying, like, hey, I'm about to go into this retail job, how bad is it? And, of course, the monolith of shitty retail superstore jobs is Walmart, and this is certainly not Walmart. In fact, I read an entire thread in which someone was saying, hey, I just got through like two nightmarish years working at Walmart and now I'm switching over to like a nice new target in my area. And I would like to propose the question to people who have worked at both places. What are the differences? What are the similarities? And the top comment, the one that is is staying with me, is someone who said, working at Walmart is an absolute nightmare. It's an absolute fucking degrading nightmare. Now, working at Target is a little like working at Walmart, except the shirts are red. And like, I'm just reading people's like negative experiences. Naturally, those are the funniest. Those are the most colorful. Those are the ones that are most upvoted. And so when you search, in a social media, you know, platform for, like, people's accounts of what it's like to work at these places, the ones that fly to the top are the most, like, salacious, the most incendiary, the most, uh, kind of depressing. But what I realize I'm doing here is I am judging a situation before I've really stepped into it. I haven't, I didn't read anything about Target that makes me think it's going to be a nightmarish experience or anything. I just know that deep down, I'm going to go there, I'm going to be smiling, I'm going to have good energy, I'm going to get through my shift, it's going to be fine. But deep down, part of me is going to like resent the experience. 
Part of me is going to be thinking like, fuck, wouldn't it be better if I was at my desk writing something, recording something, reading something? And yet, the, this is fucking layers of reaction. Like, I, I, I recognize that resentment, Alex, friend of mine. I recognize your resentment of the fact that you're going to be working retail for very little money rather than pursuing creative things. But this is part of why I got so excited about flipping things, thrifting. When the freelance writing and proofreading and editing work, when it was clear that that shit wasn't gonna fly, I went hard into reselling and I fucking loved it. It was so exciting. But one thing was very, very similar between writing and reselling. And it's something that I saw commented upon in like every reseller podcast or vlog, which is that both enterprises, whether you're creative writing or you're a fucking reseller spending all day hopping across thrift shops and garage sales, they are both incredibly solitary. Now, one of them is a little more social than the other because at least as a thrifter, a flipper, reseller, whatever you want to call it, you're out in the world and you're engaging with people, you're haggling and well, you're negotiating to some extent. Like I found that shit really, really fun. Still do. But I know that, like, what I what was really great and galvanizing about stepping into that is it was getting me out of the apartment. And I'm not saying, like, oh, hurrah, hurrah, it's getting me out of the apartment, I hate it here. It's that I know I'm not doing myself any favors by spending every single day at this, every day that I can, for as long as I can, at this desk, reading shit, writing shit, trying to put out podcasts, trying to create things, trying to tell stories, because if I'm not out in the world engaging with people, going places, picking things up, there's basically nothing to report. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just me being self-conscious, but I kind of feel it when I have edited a succession of podcast episodes in which I don't really recount anything that happened to me. I instead talk about what I watched, what I read, and then I opine on those things, or I draw connections, or I, whatever, riff about some aspect of it. And like, not to get too heady about it, but I, I remember being very compelled by watching uh, Dr. Cornell West riff in a, a video of him in a taxi. He's talking about like, is the sedentary life, the life of study and of creativity alone in a room, is that really a life? In other words, is a philosopher who has spent nine entire consecutive days in his study, you know, enwrapped in the clutches of some epiphany, is he having a more vibrant experience than someone who is traipsing with a machete through the jungle and battling the elements and fellating tribesmen. You know, naturally, because he is one of those, you know, professionals, he is a he's a professor and he's a public intellectual. Naturally, his ultimate conviction is like, yeah, the life of the mind is vibrant. It's very active. You can make up from his perspective. You can make a great living doing it. But I sometimes wonder. And another thing that comes to mind in that respect is like. Quentin Tarantino saying that he's gonna hang up his hat, his directing hat, after his 10th movie, which would be his next movie. Because he says, like, in a life of watching movies and, like, not just following directors' sort of professional trajectory, their filmography, actually studying that filmography, he finds that the movies just, they, they start losing some spirit. The filmmakers become professional filmmakers, and so they just sort of annually or every two years they take on a big job. And then they get that job done. But the movie that they made, the piece of art that they created, it did not sprout 
from some very, very passionate seed of, of personal experience, personal observation, personal turmoil. It was just like they kind of found a screenplay, it was a cool story, and so they shot it. And frankly, I noticed that kind of thing happening a lot with authors. Someone was recounting a story online recently about, I mean, who the fuck knows if it's true, I kind of doubt it, but that they encountered the novelist Cormac McCarthy on an elevator. And they said to McCarthy, um, hey, sorry, this is uncomfortable, just really quick, I, I have to say you're my favorite novelist and I, I, I want to be a writer too and I'm just wondering like how do you write a book in which you just hit on every cylinder, like how does one do that? And allegedly McCarthy as he's getting off the elevator said, read, make sure you read 1,000 books for every one that you write. Which was advice that was given by a dude named Mike Weingardner. He won some contest, he was a published novelist but he won a contest and he got the right to do like the official sequel to Mario Puzo's The Godfather. It was called The Godfather Returns. Fuck it. And then I think he wrote another one called The Godfather's Revenge. Both of them were like universally panned and they should have been because I haven't read the books and I won't read the books because I can't, I have been burned too many times by watching any kind of sequel, any kind of prequel where the title of the thing is just the title of the intellectual property, colon, and then some word that starts with R-E. Return, revenge, resurrection, redemption, retribution, returgence, reticulated. You find it in the Silent Hill franchise, the, uh, the Alien franchise, the Resident Evil franchise, the Raid movies. Why the fuck was I even talking about? Oh, yeah, no, I, I noticed, well, the Mike Wein Weingartner thing he had said in Writer's Digest or something when I was in middle school, I remember reading it, that you should read 300 novels for every one that you attempt to write. All of these numbers are arbitrary, obviously, but the general sentiment is true. The general principle is true. You should ingest more stories than you attempt to tell. A fucking way more practical way of expanding that is simply to say that a person should listen more than they speak. And that is absolutely true, but if you take that to heart, let's say you take Cormac McCarthy's advice to heart, and you say, I'm going to read 1,000 novels so that I can write one of my own. And then you, you make, you're a millionaire and you make a full-time job of it. And for 10 hours a day, every consecutive day, for however many years it takes, you read 1,000 crime novels. And then you sit down upon, immediately upon the completion of that 1,000th crime novel, and you begin to write your own crime novel. That crime novel is going to suck. Because it isn't just that you need to have read a thousand iterations of this kind of story. It isn't just that you need to have internalized, deeply internalized, the mechanics, not only of storytelling, but of, like, syntax, paragraph, pacing. You need to have been out in the world. You need to interact with people. You need to speak with the kinds of people who populate a d d conventional crime novel. This keeps coming up, and like everything I attempt to record, and I, and I mostly take it out, but like, dude, in my past two months of looking for work, most of it freelance, but also like, when I got more into the nitty gritty of like, trying to find serving work, bartending work, busing, and food running work, it seems like easily. 70% of the job opening application kinds of things for service work online in Miami are just like inactive, like they can't be trusted, you're not gonna get a response. And easily 20% of them are some kind of scam. All of that aside, like, it is good for me creatively that I will get out of this apartment, I, that uh, circumstances will force me out of this apartment, and I will see things, and I will meet people, and I will have interesting encounters. All right, the dog just 
the dog just Bruno just jumped off the couch and he's pacing the apartment, so he has to poop. I will be I will be back. Okay, back from the walk. Happy to report he did his business. After he did his business, I then had the pleasure of taking out a little colorful plastic bag and uh, bagging the business and then tying it up and carrying it beside me so that it swings and bounces off my hip as, as we walk for block after block after block. Me in a colorful plastic bag full of feces like I'm trick-or-treating in hell. Also on this walk though, I'm happy to report, I do feel better. Like I'm coming, I'm back up in the apartment. I got really sweaty, so I took a shower, and I think just like getting out of here and getting the blood flowing helps for cooler heads to prevail. And also, it is an example of exactly what I'm talking about. Bruno got down off the couch and he was like, it's time for us to go outside. And so we went outside and I benefited from that excursion. And I was just saying this um, a moment ago about thrifting and reselling. Part of what was so great about that, like there's the excitement of a treasure hunt vibe as you, you know, study what are the brands of clothing that kind of covertly, they're cheap, but they, they move a lot of product or vice versa. This sense of like you're looking for treasure accrues and it isn't just that this got me out of the apartment doing something, interacting with people. It's that this got me out of the apartment and sent me out to a bunch of Salvation Army locations and Goodwill locations and a couple of people, strangers' houses to look at their inventory of things that they were trying to get rid of and, you know, make an offer. And what's great about going to those kinds of places, being in those environments, interacting with such people, if you are like a creative type and you're looking for material, you're trying to get some thematic input, is that they also happen to be the weirdest fucking places, or you just see a weird tableau every time you go into one of these places. Because with the exception of, like, the Goodwill in Little Havana, which is right there on the, on the boundary with Brickell Avenue, which is like a very affluent neighborhood in Miami, that Goodwill location is famous in the city because, like, you, you find a lot of designer shit there. But also, that is the only one that's, like, super spacious. Everything is spread out wide. It is very clean. And I also note, maybe I'm being paranoid or just like accusatory or projecting, but I get the sense that they deliberately flesh out their shelves in a very sparse way so that it looks more like a boutique. Anyways, the, I was uh, like two weeks ago, I was at a Salvation Army. I sort of forced myself out of my funk and I went across the bridge and I went to this Salvation Army and I was all in my head. I was worrying about money. I was wanting to get back to the desk so I could work on Cuba fruit or Cuba tooth. And then I like I looked in a corner where everything at this Salvation Army, it's wonderful. Everything is just thrown together. And there was a broken wheelchair and there was like this square shaped thing kind of sitting limp in the broken wheelchair. And there was a baseball cap with writing on it hooked like over the armrest of the wheelchair. So I go to the wheelchair and I pick up the hat. And on the back of the hat is the is the label of one of these places where you can like make your own hats. And on the front of it, on the forehead of the cap, it says, most people don't look this good at 90. And then there was like a little animation patch of a jet, like a fighter jet flying through the air. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because there's a story there right away. Because uh, this is, there's a tag saying somebody had this hat made probably as a gift for somebody else, probably someone who served in the military, was in the Air Force. If they're 90 years old now, they were probably flying in, you know, Korea or Vietnam. And the other part of the story is that whoever owned, whatever, whoever this hat was made for, 
obviously they're dead. You can't say obviously because you don't know the situation, but obviously they're dead. The hat looks a little rumpled. It's been around for a while. It was given to somebody on probably their 90th birthday. Likely that the person isn't there. Also, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but this this hat is hooked on a broken wheelchair. Did the, did the wheelchair belong to the person who had the hat? I also then looked more closely at what was situated in the seat of the wheelchair, and it was a chessboard. And anything that was happening in my life at the moment that I, like, assimilated the three items in front of me, that view would have lifted me out of anything. A broken wheelchair with a chessboard and a, a dead man's hat just piled together amid, like, here's a, here's a pile of COVID tests that you can take for a dollar a piece, and here's 2,000 books in random order. It was such a feast, and, like, my first couple visits to Salvation Army, like, I consistently found myself spending more money on the parking in Wynwood because I kept renewing, I kept getting notified, like, hey, you've got 10 minutes. I was there for three hours the first time, two hours the second time, and now, and then, like, I went so many times in the space of two weeks that, like, I, it was all, I, none of, none of the inventory was new. I'd seen it all. But I was just so enchanted walking through there, trying to see little narratives. Like, you, you look at certain items and, and you can tell they came from the same home. And another, I may have even discussed this in, a, in, an, in an episode about Goodwill in the past that, like, sometimes it's a very run-of-the-mill collection of books at a certain thrift store. And run-of-the-mill run at a thrift store means it's a bunch of hardcovers that were at the top of the bestseller list 15 months ago and of course with a with a peppering of like eternal bestsellers so like every there's always one or two copies of to kill a mockingbird there's still a bunch of copies of 50 shades of gray parts one two and three the da vinci code ghost set of watchmen angels and demons but every now and then like after six or seven consecutive visits like weekly visits or bi-weekly visits to a goodwill you'll go there and if you are familiar with this book selection you're familiar with its ebbs and flows and the kinds of things that pop up there and the kinds of things that don't one day you'll go there and there's like nine densely annotated highlighted volumes of World War II naval military history, and it hits you, or I don't know, like, it's all very personal, maybe none, of, maybe none of this is relatable at all, but I'll see something like that and I'm like, oh, fuck, someone died, and like, all their shit was tossed here, and it's not just all their shit was tossed here, it's, these books obviously meant a lot to this person, like, they clearly poured over these books, they spent a lot of time with it, and I don't, it's not, necessarily the case. In fact, it's probably unlikely that these books were just tossed to the nearest thrift store by loved ones. Usually it's some loving, selfless family member who shows up to the house of the bereaved and they're like, all right, we gotta fucking get rid of a bunch of shit. Yes, it meant something to the departed and you want to respect that person's memory, but respect the fact that they probably wanted you to have a little elbow room in this house. And so yeah, here are these nine obscure volumes of dense World War II naval military history and does that is let's say you're you're the widower and like your spouse loved this shit, lived for it, spent a lot of time over it, but you've probably got maybe 15 years to go on this earth if you're lucky. Are you ever going to crack those volumes? Are they ever going to mean anything to you? Almost certainly not. And when they go to the goodwill, are they going to be purchased by somebody who's like just the right fit for them? Are they ever again going to be read from page one to page whatever the end? Almost certainly not. And then, I don't know, like, I get really romantic in imagining these all, like, the lives that surround some of these objects, and then I'm standing in the goodwill, in my feelings, holding something that, like, I have 
convinced myself meant a great deal to someone. And then I feel this burden of like, what am I supposed to do with these nine volumes of densely annotated World War II military naval histories? The answer is nothing. The answer is you're supposed to leave them, especially me. But uh, so, so that happens, but also, there is that treasure hunt vibe, and it's very crude. I still feel vulgar when I scan a barcode publicly to see if it's something I can buy this cheap here and flip it for more money online. But I've also found that it's less fun if you're doing it that way. What's more fun is like go home, pour a drink, and spend an hour and a half or two hours scrolling through everything, everything that has just sold on Poshmark or Mercari or eBay in the department of men's jeans or women's jeans and make note of the brands make note of the prices for which they sold and make note of like the sizes that appear to be in greatest demand and in lowest demand which are the sizes that seem to prompt the most money which sizes not which colors seem to spark an upcharge which colors seem to be like on eternal discount. And then, like, you, you cement in your head, like, a few brands and a few ranges of sizes, and then you go to the thrift store, and you hunt, and you, you collect a few items. I, I, I have yet to go to a thrift store and spend more than $15. And then you come back, and you, you see what you've got, and you try to photograph it in a handsome way, and, and then you either sell them or you don't. And you, you play around with the price, and people, you know, they lowball you, and you counteroffer. It's fun, dude. I really enjoy it. But I, it's, and I mentioned like one of my few New Year's resolutions is I want to hit $3,000 in a month. Dude, why am I, I, we're talking about Target. The fact that I'm working at Target. And yeah, none, that doesn't have anything to do with reselling. What it does pertain to though, I think, as is like the Joe Biden thing about what he learned from his dad. One of the million things he's constantly telling us he learned from his dad, which is that having a job, like it doesn't, yes, it matters what the job is, but there is an aspect of of having of being employed that is seldom discussed because it seems hokey. Maybe it's a little too close to a nerve, but it's a question of like dignity. Like with reselling, I'm at a point now that I'm selling something every couple days, and it's sometimes it's a, a thirty dollar piece of tech that I picked up for eight dollars. Sometimes it's a twelve dollar PlayStation game that I picked up at some secondhand sale for a buck. But it's little trickles of money. It's not enough you can live on. But dude, there's like fucking great pride when I'm selling like my 10th item, my 16th item. There's a sense of like, yeah, this isn't enough money to live on, but I was in a fucking terrible situation and uh, I made something work. And that's the attitude with which I'm trying to approach this target thing. It's not great, but it is an opportunity that has sort of ambled into my crosshairs in a really, in a moment of need. And I'm gonna jump on that opportunity. It's not gonna be glamorous, but I'm gonna show up and because Jobs are in short supply. I'm gonna be gracious as fuck. And the money I get from Target will also probably not be enough money to support myself, but it will be enough money to go to, uh, like, a bunch of thrift stores and garage sales and find things there that I can flip. And maybe when you combine those two things, part-time hours at a superstore and more, maybe more than part-time hours thrifting and flipping things online, going to the post office, interacting with buyers. Maybe that amounts to like 50 hours a week or 55 hours a week and still only generate something like 35,000, 45,000. I'd be such a pig in shit with pride if I was earning, if I was earning just like a baseline respectable 
sort of middle of the road American domestic income. So long as I knew that like that money was coming from this this enterprise that I enjoy and there's the treasure hunt component, you never know the day might come you find that armoire that Louis the 14th carved a dick on. Anyways, those are my thoughts about the Target employment and uh yeah. I will be doing that, I will be recording about it, and uh, it's going to get me outside, it's going to get me interacting with people, it's going to get me experiencing new things and thinking in new ways, and fucking, in all honesty, I'm pretty excited. Thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, this actually, before we wrap things up, this might be a good moment to mention there's a Patreon. If you want to throw a few bucks at the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash thousand movie projects. Thanks for listening, I'll talk to you next time.